This podcast features discussions about finances and money, which are general in nature. For personal advice specific to your circumstances, see a licensed financial planner or relevant qualified professional. Hi, folks. Welcome along to another episode of Looking Under the Hood, where we are unpacking the money stuff. I'm Scott Malcolm, and today we're jumping in again to talk about the public sector super schemes, being the Commonwealth Super Scheme or the public sector super scheme being the PSS, and divorce. Now, we do talk about divorce a lot uh, on this podcast so far, but it is quite a, a complex topic. Definitely one of those big life transitions that can have a massive impact on people, both emotionally and financially, if it's not managed well. As a geek who does love the ins and outs of the public sector super schemes, we've talked about how complex these can be and how they form part of a financial settlement during the divorce process. In today's episode, we're going to be unpacking this further with a friend of the show, Gianna Thompson from Fitzpatrick's Private Wealth, who's a CFP and money coach and also a public sector super expert, as well as being joined by Jonathan Naff, who is a lawyer and co-founder of Balance Family Law. Jono has an interest in making the legal solutions accessible, affordable through technology and disruptive thinking, as well as being a fellow super geek like Gianna and I. Welcome along, Gianna and Jono. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you once again. Now, Gianna's been on the show before, so go and check out the episode with her and I'll put that link in the show notes as well. But Jono, I've been asking all my guests to consider or think about an early happy or joyous money memory that they've got. Have you got a, a happy money memory that you're happy to share? I do, yes. I think from an early age, I was always a saver and I always loved earning money and, and counting it and seeing how much that I had in my little piggy bank. So one of my early memories is from primary school with the little Dolomites wallets that you used to take in with a few dollars every now and again and having it deposited into your account, but also how my uh, parents would use money sometimes to silence us children in the back seat on long car trips, getting us to count the number of animals we saw for one cent per animal until we fell asleep or something like that. So lots of happy memories surrounding money and saving for me. I love that. I wonder what the equivalent today would be. I guess we've still got the five cent pieces, but yeah, the, the one and two cent pieces, maybe parents of today have been a little bit uh, adjusted for inflation by losing those coins. Well, the one cent I think was just to make sure they weren't out of pocket too much. If we decided that we wanted to stay awake for the few hours that we're in the car and they're out for a lot of money. So one cent usually only ended up coming to $5 before we'd fall asleep or something. So... What did you save for first? Do you remember one of the, the things that was uh, exciting that you saved up for I when you were young? I think the first thing I remember buying that I was really happy with and I spent my own money to buy was an old Nintendo 64 and some games. So we had a Nintendo, my parents sold it and I decided, no, I want it back. So I went to EB Games with my piggy bank to go and uh, buy another one. So that was very fun and we still have it. 
Yeah. Oh, even better. And it's probably vintage now. So you've probably got the vintage games on it and uh, it's probably worth even more than uh, when you bought it. It is vintage Mario Kart gets busted out every now and again. Perfect for lockdown now that parts of the country are back in lockdown again. But uh, anyway, I'll stop going down a rabbit hole around vintage games. But look, thanks so much for joining me, Jono. Gianna, thanks and and welcome back again. We'll get started because it is quite an interesting topic and quite a technical one at times. But Jono, what is the big deal about the CSC interest, so the Commonwealth Super Scheme interest being the public sector or the defined benefit interest, when it comes to a family law discussion and split of assets when you're at that mode? Yes. So superannuation generally is becoming more and more part of discussions for property settlements after people separate. It's often the most valuable thing that one or both of them have outside of the family home. And sometimes, depending on what scheme you're in, it's worth more than the family home. So it is a big part of the property settlement or financial settlement discussions after separation. But especially for those Commonwealth super schemes and the PSS, DFRDB, MSBS funds, because for family law purposes, and this is because of the nature of the fund and how the benefits are available on retirement, the value for family law purposes isn't necessarily the same value that you might get on a super statement every six or 12 months. So unpacking exactly what type of interest you have with what fund, how is it going to be treated on at retirement, what is the actual value of it for family law purposes, and then having all of that form part of the discussion so that people can try and work together to resolve their property settlement, having all those factors in mind. Gianna, I might bring you into the conversation now as well. So from a, a financial planning perspective, I guess the, obviously lawyers are going to go through the right, what's fair and equitable under the family law process and based on family relationships and dynamic. But what are some of the things that folks need to be considering when they're looking at it from the, the financial planning perspective when they're going through this process? Yeah, I, as Jonathan just mentioned, the family law valuation can be quite different to what they see in their member statement. So I think it's just being mindful that it could be a lot more than what they anticipated. So just being open to negotiations with them and their lawyer and, and I suppose their former spouse in relation to these defined benefits. So, for example, you know, if you have a DFRB pension back from the military days, it's going to be included as part of the property settlement. Just probably try to take, I know it's quite difficult, but try to take the emotion out of it, you know, trying to hold on to that pension because it may actually negatively impact your ability to achieve other goals such as having a deposit to fund another home or, or other retirement things. So just be open within negotiations and try not to be too surprised with the valuation that comes back. And John, I think pre the show, we were talking a little bit about the obligations that people have when it comes to the legal process. So John and I have probably worked with clients a lot over the times where they've, they've sort of, oh, I don't want my super counted or I don't want those bits um, pulled in together. But what does that all mean? What obligations are there? And I guess what is just and fair outcome? I guess that's, I don't know if I'm quoting this right, but I think that's a part of the, the Family Law uh, Act and how the family court looks at things. So what, what does that all, all that mean? Yeah, so I'll touch on the obligations part of that question first. In terms of obligations when you're going into a financial settlement, both parties are required to provide what we call full and frank financial disclosure of all of their assets. So what property they own, bank accounts, shares, superannuation funds, debts, credit cards, everything. 
And the reason for that is because going into a property settlement, you want to have your eyes wide open as to what it is that forms part of the pool, because that's an important step in determining what may be just and equitable or fair. And as part of that process, providing a value for those assets, debts, superannuation interest that's as accurate as possible. So for the CSC or defined benefits super schemes, that may involve or or should probably involve getting a formal valuation done for that interest so that a more accurate value can be provided for that and discussed as part of the settlement. And the process for valuing those interests is relatively easy. It's a Form 6 application that gets sent off to the CSC. There's a small fee that you have to pay, of course, to get that information and then getting someone who has the appropriate sort of experience or training to value that interest. So whether that be a lawyer who values interests or financial planner or an actuary. And then when it comes to property settlement as well, and you're valuing super interest, if you're going to split the super as part of your agreement, then the interest must be valued. So technically, if you're not going to split the interest, you don't have to value the super fund, but it's always recommended that you do. But if you are going to split super, then you have to get it valued. In terms of what's just an equitable or a fair outcome, I'll just go back to and echo what Gianna had said previously about considering people's goals and interests and where they want to be after their property settlement, because the law does provide a framework for how you may determine or how a court may determine what is just and equitable and fair. And that's based on four steps. So the first one is what's in the asset pool available to be divided. The second one is what contributions each of you have made to the relationship whether that's financial, non-financial, homemaking, childcare. The third one's about what future needs or circumstances exist for each of you. So age, health, income, earning capacity, caring responsibilities. And then there's the fourth overarching step, which is what is considering all of those things just and equitable and fair. But because every relationship is different and how people want to approach their settlement may be different, That framework and how that's applied and how much that's relied upon by both parties may change and making sure that people keep in mind what their goals and interests are, where they want to be, do they want to purchase a house, are they close to retirement and what the balance of their super fund is, is really important to them. That's the sort of discussions that we encourage people to have when starting out the process. How do we want to approach this? And if we're wanting to do things amicably and try and keep conflict as minimal as possible, there may be some, but trying to keep it as minimal as possible, then focusing on those things might be the best first step. Yeah, fantastic. And look, we've spoken, I guess, to probably colleagues of yours in Canberra and around on that collaborative law approach. And I think that just gets such a better outcome for people if you are not, uh, I don't know, trying to fight each other for outcomes. So that's a really good uh, point to note there as well. Gianna, just bringing you back in with your knowledge, and we've probably touched on it briefly in our prior episode as well, but why does that value of the defined benefit, why is that different to the standard accumulation funds? Uh, So with these defined benefit funds, so generally it means that what people get in retirement, for example, is defined by a formula, not what you've accumulated plus, you know, your earnings over time. It's an actuarial calculation that takes into account their age and their life expectancy. So, for example, estimating what their lifetime pension would be, you know, up until life expectancy. So, yeah, it's a bit of a formula 
projecting forward future benefits as well as what they currently have. And that's kind of why it's, uh, yeah, it can be quite different to accumulation funds where, you know, accumulation funds are like a bank account. It's what your supervision guarantee plus earnings plus any voluntary cons, what that balance is, is it's a balance that you've got, whereas defined benefit is is a lot more than that. It's yes, it's what you have today, but it's also the calculation, I suppose, to project forward what the future benefits will be. Yeah, definitely. And I think people get tripped up a lot with that as well, still not quite understanding how their super works. And so they go, oh, yeah, I've got this fund. What does it actually do? So I think, as you said before, like just sitting down with someone, getting the right advice and and thinking about some of those things is so important as you're going through that process. What is the process then to get the split done? Does it just, you just go, right, okay, we're in agreement now. Thanks, Jono. High five. Let's go and uh, move on with our new life. What's the process from there? Look, the process isn't that difficult, but it's not that easy, unfortunately. But if we're looking at you've reached agreement now and you're wanting to get it formalised, that's the first step, getting whatever you've agreed to formally documented. And there's a couple of different ways that that can be done. So the first way and the simplest way to do that is an application for consent orders, which is an application to the court, filling out a form and having some orders. No one actually has to attend court for you to do that. It's purely an administrative process. Or another way is called a binding financial agreement, which is a private agreement without the court's involvement. But if you've reached an agreement and that involves a superannuation split because you've agreed to that or you you may have agreed that you're not going to do a super split, which is fine, but if you have done a super split, then the first step is before anyone signs the agreement is to send the terms that relate to the super split to the super fund so that they can review them and they can confirm that if this agreement is made, they're actually going to comply with the orders or with the terms. It's called procedural fairness and it's a requirement that you have to provide the fund with procedural fairness of the proposed terms. If you don't and then you do sign the agreement or get the orders and then you send it to the fund, they can turn around and say, we're not doing this. And that, that's probably got to do with their responsibilities as well, Jono, to a degree, as being trustees of super money. Is that fair to say? Like it's because of that arrangement? Yeah, correct, correct. And what the specific deed for the fund says, they need to make sure that the orders that you're seeking actually fall within what they're able to do as trustees under what the deed says. That's the first step. Then say trustee comes back and they say, yep, no problems, we can approve your agreement. You get that lodged with the court or signed and then once that has happened and you've got your sealed orders or your signed agreement, you send it back to the superannuation fund and then they start the process of splitting the super. So they might contact you directly to get your details to set up a new account or whatever the case is, but it has to be sent back to the super fund because if you don't send it back, the super fund doesn't really know that that's happened and they don't really have to do anything. So have to make sure it gets sent back. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. And Gianna, I guess on the practical, you've worked at Commonwealth Super Corporation, but I guess also as a planner as well, what happens once the split has occurred? Because there's a few different types of things that can happen from that mm, split yeah. perspective, aren't there? Yeah, so it depends on what phase that the member is. So if the member is in payment phase, for example, already receiving a pension, 
or still in accumulation phase, such as a contributing member or a preserved benefit member. So if the member is already receiving the pension, then the associate will receive a portion of that pension immediately, regardless of what age they are. The pension, when when it's split 50-50, for example, it may not completely add up to 100%, but that's, you know, again, just a formula that takes into account age and life expectancies of the parties. But generally speaking, if, if the member is already a pensioner, then the associate will become a pensioner immediately as well. Then if the member is like a contributing member or a preserved benefit member, then a separate interest is created for the associate. So the associate will receive a portion of the member productivity and funding components into their own account, I suppose. So they can't make any contributions into PSS. They can't roll over this little account out of PSS. It basically sits there. And part of it will um, accumulate fund earnings and the other part, which is the unfunded component, will just be indexed in line with the Treasury bond rate. When the associate satisfies a condition of release, for example, they've reached preservation age and retired, then they can look at claiming their pension or lump sum or whatever they choose to do at that time. But I suppose the important thing is here is that the associate or the non-member spouse does not have to wait for their ex-husband or ex-wife to retire before they can claim their benefits. They claim their benefits based on their own condition of release, such as reaching age, preservation age and, and retiring. Yeah, exactly right. And as we've talked about before, around these public sector schemes, that's 55 for pension age for a lot of people. So again, it's about doing your numbers and checking all that out. When we're talking about this, so what what tips and traps that people going through the divorce process, especially when it comes to the defined benefit uh, side of things might face or, or come across? Definitely. So I'll preface it by saying most of the time things work out great and once an agreement's been reached, it's all documented and the fund interest is split and people go on their way. But we have encountered times where things haven't really been done properly and it has a drastically different outcome to what people intended. So, for example, before I mentioned making sure that once you've got an agreement reached that that's actually sent back to the super fund so that they can do the split We have had people in the past where they've come to us and they're getting close to retirement age and they're like, oh, I haven't seen the interest. I don't know what's happening. And it turns out that the orders were never served on the super fund. So the interest wasn't created for them. And then down the track, when they do do the interest, because we've served them with the orders or the agreement, the amount that they get is not what they'd originally intended the agreement to be. Sometimes it works out a lot more, which they might think is great, but the other party might come back and say, no, 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 that's not what we'd agreed to at all. Or there might be issues with the orders that the fund says, no, we're not going to comply with these anymore because our deeds changed or whatever the case is. And then that involves us having to try and work through and correct the orders, which may involve having to go back to court and getting new orders made or having the agreement done in a different way. So that's one of the biggest tips that I would say is making sure that when you've got an agreement that the super fund is served with that agreement so they can affect it. And prior to and post that happening, making sure that you're getting the right advice from lawyers, financial planners to make sure that everything is has happened and will happen as per what you've agreed so that you can 
move forward after your separation and not have to think back and worry about, oh, is this actually going to happen at retirement or do I need to now come back to lawyers to try and sort it all out? That's really good. And, and I mean, look, none of us can uh, future-proof life totally. I guess there's always that chance of change and the unknown. But I think if you get the right team around you, it definitely is that team approach of having the right lawyer, the right financial planner. And if there's other people that need to be involved, like accountants and other things, getting the right professionals around you to assist through that process. So that's some great tips there. Jono, I guess on the legal front, have you got any other or top three tips that you'd say to people if you're going through the process, these are the top three must-haves or the top three things that you'd say, right, you've got to definitely do these things? Yeah, two of them are about getting advice, but the first one is getting advice from the right places. When people separate, obviously it's an emotional time and they want to talk about it with people or they might not want to talk about it at all, but we have encountered times where people have been talking with very well-intentioned family members or friends and they're talking about their cousin's friend who got divorced and it was horrible and they had to go through court or their other friend who this is what happened to them. And while that's all well-intentioned, Every family is different. Every circumstance is different. Every agreement is going to be different. So thinking that the outcome of your financial or property settlement is going to be the same as other people's is not necessarily the case. So getting advice from the right players, go and see a lawyer. Not many people like going to see a lawyer, except we're trying to help and make sure that people are getting the right advice and they're not setting themselves up for further conflict down the track. The second one is getting advice early. So the longer you leave it, if you're wanting to try and preserve the super fund or you're more than happy to split it with your spouse, but you're wanting to split it from now and not in a year's time or two years time when you get around to doing everything, is getting advice early on what the implications of waiting versus doing things now might have for you and for your superannuation fund and starting that discussion early, both with your advisors and also with your former spouse around, okay, we've separated, both of us want to be able to move forward. So how can we do this? Let's start that conversation now. And the third one is having any agreements formally documented. For superannuation especially, if it's not formally documented, the split won't happen. And as well as that, having an agreement formally documented means that there's the line drawn as to what property is part of the pool and part of the property settlement and what's not. Uh, I know from your episode with, you mentioned Casey, a colleague from Canberra mentioned, you know, if in six months time you win the lottery, if you hadn't had your agreement documented before that had happened, then those lottery wins may form part of the pool. So having the agreement documented once you've reached it can make sure that anything that happens in the future, whether it's inside or outside of super, that's kept separate. Gianna, throwing to you, any big tips or traps that you've seen along the way from a planning perspective when it comes to the divorce process and PSS and CSS, and then also your top three tips as well? If you already have an existing relationship with your financial planner, let them know what's happening. You know, if I've been a financial planner over time for a couple and they're facing a divorce, just let me know because it's obviously going to change your financial position and therefore my financial advice. Due to conflicts of interest, we may need to pull back on our relationship whilst the financial settlement is finalised. But as soon as the settlement is finalised and you know your new financial position again, then we can pick it back up and advise on the new financial planning piece, I suppose, and take you forward from there on. Also, depending on the family law process that you 
go through, for example, collaborative family law, financial advisors can really provide a lot of value with negotiations. So, for example, being a financial neutral for you know both parties, and it allows us to provide some financial modelling to show you what if scenarios. So, what if they held onto the house or sold the house or whatever, and we can include the valuations for these CSC interests as well. And that can help you work out, okay, how are we going to split the benefits, but also how it's going to impact our future and get us back on track to achieve our independent financial goals. If you are facing divorce and you have one of these defined benefit schemes, get straight onto the CSC website because I have a really good fact sheet on there, family law splitting fact sheet, which goes through a lot of detail in very plain English of what happens to these defined benefit schemes? You know, what's the process of getting a Form 6? How do you get it valued? How do you split the benefits? When can the associate claim their benefits? It's a really good fact sheet. So I strongly encourage you to jump on there and just check it out. Yeah, great, Gianna. And that's a really good tip because uh, the ATO website is getting much better and also the, the Money Smart website is a great resource. But also a bit of a shout out to Commonwealth Super Corporation. Their website is also uh, looking pretty good these days and there is such a range of resources there. They've actually got a really good client support team in there as well that help out with all those processes. Any final resources or anything else, Jono, that you want to add to the mix? Lawyer books or uh, fact sheets or online resources you'd suggest people have a look at as well? Yeah, so there is a great textbook for those who like reading textbooks like I do, written by Stephen Burke, who is a, a lawyer and does super valuing and provides expert advice. On. Big, big shout out to Stephen Burke. Yes, big shout out to Stephen, who is a great guy. Very, very friendly, very resourceful, but he's written a textbook that goes through everything you would need to know about superannuation and family law splits, how valuations work, how you can document your agreement and everything. So that's a great resource that I always have next to me when I'm going through super splits. And also things like our social media, we put some posts up every now and again about superannuation and how it might be treated or some different strategies to approaching settlement. And especially when it involves superannuation that people might find helpful as well. Yeah, fantastic, Jono. And, and look, I'll put all your contact details up on the show notes as well. And Gianna, any any last resources that you'd throw out there? I think we've got sort of three thumbs up for the um, CSC website, but any other resources or any other uh, insights you want to throw in there as well? Uh, yeah, as you, as you mentioned, you know, the Money Smart website, ATA website, your family lawyer who is familiar with these schemes, I suppose, and, and a financial planner who's familiar with these schemes. Yeah, definitely. Look, I think get advice, get advice, get advice, but make sure that the people that you're getting advice from are actually aware of what the schemes are and the power of the schemes as well. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jono and Gianna. Been great to connect with you both again. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you're enjoying the show, please jump on and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And we look forward to seeing you or speaking with you next time. Bye.